Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, a series in which we take a deep dive into the Dungeon Master's Guides written for the previous editions of our favorite game. We're here to discuss what worked, what didn't work, what got pulled into future editions, and what got left by the side of the road. And on this, the 11th day of Edition Wars, there were 11 pipers piping, which sort of sounds like it's part of Heward's mystical organ, but we're not doing that because of phrasing. Hmm, that's true. And, you know, it could be just a divine boon. Maybe that's what a divine boon sounds like. Piper's piping. I mean, that's uh, mad flautists of Azathoth, right? That could be a divine boon. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> it could be. Oh, my. All right, sir. So last time, we we got through two chapters. <laughs> um, very good. And uh, now we're starting in on skill challenges which I'm sure we can get through in a timely manner. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> Ever the optimist. Uh, well, okay, let's start with talking about the fact that um, this is a controversial part of 4th edition. It has its lovers and its haters and people who um, – don't necessarily appreciate it, even if they don't hate it. And I have to tell you that one of the reasons why is probably the horrific example that is covered on pages 80 and 81. Yeah, that example doesn't do them any favors, is it? The example is the worst thing I have read about skill challenges. It is so bad. It does not express the actual flow of play or the feeling of a well-done skill I mean, challenge. it tries to get a little cutesy with the dialogue, and at the same time, it sort of reveals the the dryness of um, sort of faffing around with numbers to hit your marks. Um, yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, let's be honest, too. This isn't just a dig against 4th edition, because all of the DMGs that we've looked at have had horrific dialogue in their play examples. I was a fan of the some of the, the like scripts in the second ed DMG, but that's because I got used to them in a time when I was not yet able to judge them in any kind of way. All of the scripted portions of pretty much any RPG I've ever read, I, I, I can't name a single good exchange between game runner and players trying to show how the game is played in any RPG book. It's just really hard to do. It's really hard to capture how it really is at the table. And when you write it on a script and you're just reading it like a script, it's not even as good as a cold read of some actors before they actually film a scene. I mean, you know, actors sit and do cold reads. Everybody knows this, right? And it's just you reading and getting a feel for the line and learning how to determine how you're going to say it. And, you know, you can make corrections and do different things. And this isn't even as good as that because it's a facsimile of what could be in an RPG session. Anyway, I'm probably spending way too much time on this, but I just want people to know this is not really what a skill challenge sounds like, looks like, feels like when you play one well in the game. Right. And I mean, skill challenges run into a lot of the same implementation problem as combat. Um, the closer you come to uh, just announcing, you know, 
success and failure numbers uh, toward your X many successes over three failures, um, the less exciting and engaging it is. You have to bring a lot of the flavor yourself. Um, there, there's nothing intrinsic to the dice that is going to carry the scene. And and that's just games, right? Um, yeah, right, right. And and that's also why it's hard to depict what actually is happening in an example that's scripted like that. It's true. Um, but it, what we see in this is... Um, the section starts with Watsi really retrenching how um, skill challenges are supposed to work because they no longer scale the number of failures that cause catastrophic failure in your, in your challenge, right? Um, and I mean, I've been thinking about skill challenges a, a whole lot lately. Um, I, I was contacted by a, a friend on Twitter uh who's working on an approach for skill challenges in 5e. Uh, it's something I've been trying to do in my own blogging. It's really hard to do well, um, in part because of some of the problems that uh, made it a divisive issue in 4th, and in part because of some things about 5th. Um, it's, just, it's just sort of going to be divisive. Um, and difficult, and like Matt Colville has worked on uh, approaches that um, I wish I could say more nice things about because I, I, I disagree <laughs> with what he's doing. Um, so, if you'll let me, I want to lay out some some thoughts on what skill challenges can be and need to be, and uh, some paths that I'm not seeing people explore. Uh, and in part, I'm inspired by things I have seen done well and positively in other games. Do you, do you feel inclined to let me uh, wax loquacious on this topic? Sure, of course. And then I'm going to, you know, add my two cents and I'm going to talk about how this book either agrees with what you're saying or not agrees and how, you know, the good, there are some good parts in this book. So let's, well, well, let's right. Like this is not me trashing this book, right? This is me trying to of course. No, no, I know. build on what this book is doing to talk about the deeper goals that we ought to be striving toward. Right. Um, so I think that, we all know that it's really hard to deal PCs meaningful setbacks in combat in a narrative in D&D. This is because fleeing is hard and PCs don't want to do it. They don't want to admit a loss. Um, not infrequently, you, you see PCs prefer to embrace a TPK over like confessing to a loss in a, a partial and we had to leave kind of way. And in fairness to them, that does fit a heroic ethos. Like we're, we're putting it all on the line to win this, even if it costs us everything, at least we fought. That is that is a heroic ethos that is in the supporting fiction. And so while I do think there's a lot of value in teaching PCs that it's okay to run, um, don't be surprised if they don't. Um uh, 
to say nothing of the fact that opportunity attacks make it much, much harder. And even if you do cut to a chase scene, that's still by no means a guaranteed escape. Um, well, I mean, of course. And, you know, it, those heroic manifestations go all the way for back, sure, for right? Sure. I mean, you're, you know, look, why is there such a legend made out of the Battle of Thermopylae yep. and the 300? Yep. I thought you might go to, right. to that one. It, it's a perfect example. Yeah. Um, and it's so it's so well known, right? right? It, I mean, the, the historicity of how it gets presented is another question, but... Sure. Um, of course, no. But what I'm talking about, it, that's why I said the there's such a there's an, an ethos around it and it it's its manifestation in the current thought the the generic manifestation of it the ahistorical manifestation of it in the current sort of cultural pop culture knowledge aspect is what is in everybody's brain they don't really care about the actual history uh, frank miller teaches a lot of people things wrong so you know that's fine mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so what i take from, <laughs> what what i take from that right is that um, no? No offense to Frank Miller. Frank Miller can take offense. Work with him. <laughs> All right then. <laughs> Sex work is work, and people deserve better than what he gives them. Go with him. I agree. Okay. I mean, uh, I, I'm not going to apologize to Frank Miller. That's not happening. I don't know enough about him to, you know. So All right. yeah. So the what I'm trying to say here is that. Um, Skill challenges typically don't have lethal stakes, and they have a very definite fail state that isn't lethal. And PCs can, you know, are, are blocked off from that approach, but can try to do something else. So, skill challenges are a great space for setbacks in in the narrative that don't derail the narrative or end the ability of the PCs to move forward. In principle, this is true of all skill checks, but uh, in practice, a lot of DMs have a hard time like planning ahead to, do I definitely have uh, two interesting paths if this check fails? Right. So where I'm going with this is that um, skill challenges, uh, failing when you roll three failures, has both good and bad stuff about it. But having a definite fail state is great. What I'd like to do, though, is to have um, multiple possible fail states, right? So, what is it that goes wrong? How do you like? How do you define that? So, when you're writing the skill challenge, uh, maybe you think about you know three different bad things that can happen, and if uh, Arcana and Religion are going to be major skills used in that skill challenge, or if spells are going to get used to solve it, then probably some kind of your magic drained for a while, or you get cursed, needs to be on the table. Right? Um, that's what I'm thinking of in terms of like multiple forms of failure. Success probably looks sort of about one way, but I'd like to see not only multiple forms of failure, but a, a mixed success where we succeed everything else, but we got cursed in the process. And what what that does is it pulls in maybe some of the rules around pushing a role from um, Call of Cthulhu 7th edition, where if you fail a role 
and it's not this certain list of kinds of role that you can't push, um, you you can you can raise the stakes, and so the, uh, the keeper of ancient lore says, uh, okay, now if you fail the roll, this is the bad thing that will happen, or it, or something bad will definitely happen if you fail this roll, and that's not infrequently something like you pushed your library use roll well. Now you've destroyed the book, or you've accidentally set fire to the library by catching your sleeve in the candle, whatever it is, right? Um, but if you get to three failures in the skill check, but the PCs want to keep going, you just raise the stakes to, okay, now if you fail, your failure consequence is much more severe, and you only have one more failure if you roll one more failure, you take the bad stuff. But it, like, if you were at uh, six successes and uh, three failures, and you need two more successes to beat this thing, then maybe you do decide to push for two rolls. Right? That that might be a valid choice. Um, and I think that that tension could be a lot of fun. They could really contribute to things. Um, now that sort of forces me to talk about some of the existing problems in the 4E skill challenge structure. Um, one of the core problems is that um, you have this aid another option. And in 4th edition, aid another stacks without limit. Right? So someone else only has to be able to hit DC 10 and then they can aid you. Most of the skill check DCs to actually gain a success in the skill challenge are higher than DC 10. Um, that's not true if there are a lot of easy checks in the challenge, but pro tip, easy checks aren't that common. Right? Uh, and someone didn't need your aid and other if there were a bunch of easy checks in the first place. Because the DC was below 10. So, so obviously, they didn't need that. Um, so uh, the whole whole deal with it is if you're attempting to aid another, your check is also – like if you fail that DC-10 check, you aren't tallying a failure toward critical failure. So what they've created is the optimal strategy is to figure out who has the best skill bonus in whatever it is you want to try to roll. And everyone else rolls aid another to stack the odds on that and you just go really really slow and boring through the skill check if i can describe it that way then obviously that's what i think the problem is right so how do you feel about group checks uh i, I like uh, 5e's group checks pretty much fine um i think they i, I think mean, they get 4e has group checks too you know for the 4e group check is exactly the 5e group check uh, that? uh we didn't use them in 4e so i didn't learn them in 4e um, we really only learned them in 5e, but you're absolutely right. They are, they are here. But, but th- think about, um, th- think about if it, if every time somebody wanted to do another, you said, okay, then this part of the skill challenge is a group check. Everybody has to roll and 50% of you have to pass, have to succeed for, for you to, for you to get a success. And as long as this. that makes sense in sort of, in sort of the action then I'm fine with that, uh, the only place where I think group checks get 
real weird is um, with odd numbers of players contributing because of the round down rule, um, mm-hmm. you wind up needing one success for three players. That doesn't feel good. Uh, or two successes for five. Like that, that just seems wrong. Um, yeah, see, for group checks, I don't right. round down. <laughs> if they if they right. told you to explicitly to round up, then I think we're good. But yeah, as far as I recall, in 5e, which is the one place where we use group checks, uh, you are always uh, rounding down because they don't make a specific exception. Um, and, and, you know, if you're rolling a, a three-character group check and you have to score two successes, I mean... The odds are okay, but eh, they're not awesome. Uh, and, and three on five players is, again, not awesome. Yeah. I mean, in, in the way that they talk about group checks in this particular chapter and only in this particular chapter, it's not a 50% pass. It's the number that need to pass is determined by the GM. Right. I um, as I, as I keep saying, my whole opinion of group checks is formed by five E. Yeah, um, sure. So, so, so right. Um, the the skill check difficulty class by level table is uh, is fine. Um, it's just you have to pay a lot of attention to uh, when you're using those hard DCs, like. If there are a bu- if you have to score a bunch of successes before three failures, um, the probability table on that gets nasty. That that's something that I wish they had um, just made a visible part of the text here. I wish they displayed the math the way they did in um, Arcana when you and I went through that because. That absolutely has has group skill checks as a thing, right? And so here here's what he's talking about, dear listeners. If you have a complexity five skill challenge, you have to get twelve successes before three failures. And if you're level twenty two, your hard DC is twenty nine. That's a big number to roll twelve times. Um, unless you've messed with another to the point that you've got like plus plus eight to the roll because the other four members of your party in, in a five man band are all stacking up to help you, which again tedious. Kind of why did we do this? Um, but you know what they're also looking at here is a problem that I have seen in a bunch of other games. Um, so I'm a huge fan of uh, Mage of the Awakening First Edition. But one of the substantial problems in that rule set is extended skill challenges, right? Um, it, it, extended tests uh, where there isn't an explicit fail state unless someone actually rolls a dramatic failure, which isn't all that common. Um and so you might just keep like spinning up more and more and more successes so like the difficulty doesn't matter and so this is something they worked really hard to to fix um in the god machine chronicle um edition and in mage of the awakening second edition uh, 
But basically, what I'm trying to say is the problem I am talking about is a problem that I have seen an enormous number of designers attack from an enormous number of dire- number of directions. Um, as someone pointed out in, I think it was Twitter, um, if you want to look at it in these terms, you can say that all Forge in the Dark games uh, turned everything into skill challenges. The whole game is skill challenges. And that's a really valid take, and it's an informative one in that um, they have multiple kinds of damage or setback that each character personally takes. Um, like You have to be you know, looking at it through a certain lens, but everything about heat and uh, harm to characters and resource depletion and so on is is just different ways that bad stuff happens to your characters in Blades in the Dark, and a lot of that then gets you know remixed from different perspectives for uh, all of the other Forge in the Dark games. So it's the kind of thing I'm I'm trying to address here, right? Uh, for what I think skill challenges need to be in in a four E or five E situation, because ultimately I don't think that there you know you lose at three failures and you go to one fixed fail state uh, is a great situation i mean so you're you're really speaking to one of the notes that i made to myself when i was going through this chapter and that was that the basic advice on page 86 that talks about failures and having multiple different types of failures available the basic advice is great but then when you get to page 87 and you see what they suggest yeah. as the consequence for failure, it's a giant snore fest. It's like n- not very thoughtful at all. It, it's like, um, oh, you need to spend some money to make up for the failure. Or, uh, oh, you know, um, you know just, just do it again. Or, oh, the opponent gets a plus two bonus on something. Like what? Right. Yeah, like some of those might be valid ways to have consequences, but missing any context, these are giant snorefest type of consequences. So what I really want to see, what I wanted to see, was advice about how to make success states and failure states meaningful within the context of the actual adventure and skill challenge that absolutely. you're doing. I, I absolutely agree with that point. Um I mean, the, the bullet point of uh, require the players to attempt the skill challenge again is almost the worst available response. I can't think <laughs> right. of a worse one, but I don't right. want to say there definitely isn't a worse one. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. suddenly deciding that all the characters are dead, I guess, is worse. But that's a really bad approach. <laughs> and, you know, in fairness, if your skill challenge is fix the crashing airship, yeah, maybe, maybe it's... Uh, uh, maybe everyone's dead is a, a, f- a fair idea, but sure, probably sure. you don't want to write it that way. Probably you want a, a different out where they lose the airship but live with a ton of damage or something. Anyway, just to go through the book. Or, or you know it's the end of the campaign and you end it's – Well, well <laughs> you know. sure. That's uh, it's their, their fault for not knowing they're in Rogue One. <laughs> 
Anyway, so, so I do want to go through the bullets here. And- you know, I you know I had a five E game end with them uh, going down on an illicit illicit ship because they killed the brain. That was I, I did hear about that. That was really good. Yeah. That's, I mean, sad for them, but awesome. What a cool way to go. The the familiar uh, survived. Well, that that's something at least. He was a hawk, familiar, but so yeah. So there are five bullet points that they have here in Prepare for Failure, right? Um, and I want to go through each of them. There's a few more things I want to go back to earlier in the, the, the pages here, but let's do this while we're here. So uh, increase the difficulty of the character's next encounter or throw an encounter at them that's a clear result of the failure. So I don't recommend this. Um, the The first part of increasing the difficulty of the character's next encounter it's really, really hard to actually communicate that to the players. If you can make it clear that, like, oh, you raised an alarm and a bunch more uh, of the enemy are joining in this fight, then, okay, that that's fair in a, in a stealth challenge, right? This this is like punishing your dog for peeing on the floor three days ago, but you're punishing him right well, now. Right. It, it depends on. There's no connection in that dog. It depends mind. on how immediate the encounter is, right? So, in a stealth challenge, this works. In most of the kinds of challenges, not so good, right? Um, and then uh, throwing an encounter at them that's a clear result of the failure, right? Um, that's probably going to be really bad for the flow of your of your adventure. But again, if it's a stealth challenge, then okay, right? If they if they otherwise were going to get to uh, circumvent the, the giant in the courtyard or whatever, then okay, I I can dig that. Well, look, if you're sneaking past the guards and you get caught, now for me that's a branch point though, not a failure state, right? right? I mean, it is the result of the failure, but now it's okay. Do you fight the guards that discovered you, or do you try to sure. bribe them, or do you try to talk your way out of it? Like that becomes a different branch of. The actual situation, you, not just an oh, here now you have to fight these. But guys. but I think we can agree that it is a setback if faced as a consequence of failure. So so that's accomplishing Absolutely, the goal sure. of skill yeah. challenges. I, I can get into it in that way. What I'm trying to do is illustrate the point I made earlier of this would have been way better if they had given examples, yeah. Yeah. right? Like you're doing. Okay, if the if the test that was failed was a stealth test, here's how to tailor the failure to. That check. If it was an arcana, here's how to tailor the failure, right? Right. And, and yeah. in fairness, we're about to get to the examples. Uh, like looking at, at one of them in particular, um, it, it does use exactly that uh, as, the, as its failure consequence, and it's a, a logical way to go in that case, right? So, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know. Some of the examples in here are really good. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would um, say they are. So the next bullet point. Uh, assess the characters one or two healing surges each. No, no, this is not. There's not a lot of ways ways for this to feel good. I get that it's probably supposed to be uh, an endurance challenge, crossing a desert or swimming across icy seas or something. But oh man, like one or two healing surges. Okay, that's not not super exciting. Um. In in five e, yeah, it's just purely un, it's uninspiring. Right. In five e, this would certainly be you know one or two levels of exhaustion, and you know that's great. Except that I guarantee the players now feel they have to uh, 
uh, stop the adventure and take a long rest. So that's rough. Um, uh, impose a lingering effect such as a disease or a curse that works like one that hinders the characters for some time. Absolutely. This is great. Absolutely do this. Um, it, it will be a lingering problem that they have to deal with. Yes, that is what failure wants to look like. Right, this is this is a, a perfect example of what to do. This in, is Frodo getting stabbed. Right. Well, and, and like in a fate sense, that's a, a, a um, lasting consequence or whatever the, the minus eight consequence step is. Right? That's that's great. Yeah, that's something bad happens and it stays bad for a really long time. Okay. Um, impose story related consequences. Well, yeah, if you're not doing this, then just go, go home. You're drunk. <laughs> um, the characters are too late to save the captives. They lose the Duke's favor. They fail to gain some key information to help them in the adventure. Okay. So you have to make sure that if there's key information, to help them in the adventure, the adventure can still go forward, right? Be, be very careful about taking away clues. You can take away a lot of things, but if you take away information, uh, you're playing with dynamite. Like just just look at. Um, there are whole tabletop games written to do nothing but solve that problem. Mm-hmm. A whole, excuse me, a whole franchise of tabletop games. <laughs> Gumshoe. Gumshoe. Um, and then finally, require the characters to attempt a skill challenge again. No. The, the, you couldn't erase the stakes of their failure any more thoroughly than embracing the tedium of, no, you have to do it over again. That That is the worst one. Well, here's what that leads to. Either they do it so many times that they end up succeeding, or they do it so many times they hate you. Because they keep failing at the same exact thing, and that is the most boring thing in right. the world. Right. Uh, this is why get good is not a useful response in tabletop games, uh, <laughs> in as much as it's even a useful response in you know the Dark Souls fan community. So there is other good, important advice here that you absolutely need to be thinking about in, in any skill challenge, right? Um, absolutely. So- and that's why I said that, that this starts with – it starts with a horrible example, this chapter, but then it has several pages of good advice. Yep. Now, I wish the advice was shifted a little bit, but it's still good advice. Yep. Um, you know, the, the time frame – the ground rules are, are decently written. They don't reflect the example at all, but they're decently written. The, the skill challenges in depth where it talks about time frames, a variety of options – uh, structural challenges like this is golden this stuff is this is how i wish they had presented skill challenges in the first place yep. because this might have made it might have allowed people to make the case to possibly win over those who thought skill challenges were the worst idea ever and in a note of fairness they, they did have to learn what was wrong with the first model in order to write a really good model Right. Sure. Like, sure. Absolutely. Not solving all of that during initial playtesting, but learning from, oh, there's now, uh, you know, a hundredfold more people playing this system and uh, writing us you know, nasty grams about it. Well, that's 
very instructive. But like I, I love the note that uh, unlike a combat encounter, a skill challenge can cover hours or even days of progress. Yep, absolutely. That's a, a classic of um, extended challenges. And and should. Because if it's only going to be a couple of minutes, you can just use a skill check. It depends on what it is, honestly. Right. Uh, sure. Th- 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 I- there's, there's not any one-size-fits-all answer here just because skill challenges are your resolution model for such a wide range of things. Sure. But l- let, me, let, me, let me posit something to you that is going to probably be very unpopular for a lot of people. Every time you roll a skill check of any kind, it should be part of a skill challenge. And if it's not going to be part of a skill challenge, you shouldn't have to roll for it. Possibly with the exception of something like picking a lock or disabling a trap. It's a it's an interesting take. Uh, I'd, I'd love for you to expand on it because on its face, I don't agree with you. We played Advanced Dungeons & Dragons for eight years without skills. Sure. We didn't need massive amounts of skill checks. We didn't need to roll a skill check every time the character farted. (laughs) Right? So that style of game and playing, you know, the difference between let me have you roll to see if you see something in this room and, hey, let me tell you what you find if you tell me where you're looking in that room is so vast to some members of the community, to, su- to some people who enjoy role-playing games, that difference is so vast that it makes them dislike 3rd, 4th, and 5th edition. Because if you watch a typical 5th edition game, every time somebody turns around, they're rolling a perception check, rolling a history check, rolling you know, a strength check, rolling a whatever, just for basic information. Sure. And that is anathema to a great deal of old school style D&D fans, including myself. I lament about it quite often to certain friends of mine. I don't generally bitch about it because, you know, I accept the game as it is, right? Like fifth edition has enough good qualities that I can deal with the constant skill check. Role. So I, I, I get where you're coming from. Um, I agree with you in some cases and not in others. It's I just have to take it case by case. I do think that um, like role perception for tons of things is is overdone, and it, it does overvalue perception as a skill. Um, and it's tedious. And, and it's tedious. Uh, and there's there's a lot of other times when you could just make a ruling and not have the PC roll a skill check. I'm not saying skill checks aren't usable at all. I I do think that, you know, you also have the very important case of contested checks, uh, uh, such as grapples and shoves that use athletics against acrobatics or athletics. And you have, you have, okay, but but a a grapple and a shove. Most of the time you're talking combat. Sure. Sure. And Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about non-combat situations. uh, That's what I'm trying to, you know, refine the conversation around, right? Okay. Uh, you, yeah. you didn't specifically state non-combat, and so I'm refining that out of the conversation. You're right. Right. Absolutely. You're right. No, you're right. I didn't. Now, now, my other thing is that I actually do really like 
uh, arcana, history, uh, nature, and religion checks. Um, but I have players roll them with a very definite understanding that it is not uh, a, a decision point between you get uh, something you or something you get nothing. It's a decision po- point between I tell you the common knowledge and uh, I go into some level of exceptional detail and I really try to deepen the story and like tell you more about how the um, the information that I'm telling you could help you. Right. Uh, right. And, and, and you should know from listening to D and D brief, I do yeah, that too. Yeah. Right. I, I, on a failure, I, I still give them information. Exactly. It's just like it, it, not as much. Right. It, it's the exact same model as, uh, saving throws against uh, spells and other effects where what it says is on a failure, they, they take this effect on a success. They take this reduced, but non-zero effect. This is just a shoe on the other right. foot of on a failure. They get something on a success. They get a lot. Right. Right. And that, that on a failure is really about don't let this roadblock your adventure. Give them what they have to have, but maybe don't tell them how to use it, or don't hint, hint too much on how to use it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but now, now let me ask yep. you: when it explains how to roll a skill challenge in Fifth Edition, does it say any of that that we just talked oh, about? No, but Fifth Edition doesn't have a skill challenge model, right? No, no, but it has skill checks. That's what I'm right. Sure the the section on skill checks and what they mean in Five E is really sort of shockingly light. And for the real implementation of skill checks, you you can't look to the player's handbook or the DMG. You have to look to the adventures, which is weird. I I totally agree it's weird, but um, it's where we are. Right. So so I'm just... so all I'm doing is right. So, and I know that this conversation keeps, I keep flopping back and forth between four E and five E, but the reason I'm doing that is because third, fourth and fifth edition are modern D and D. All three of those editions have distinct specific skill systems and not, and not counting skill challenges. The skill check system of four E is very close to the skill check system of five E. And the way that those two systems implement the check is different from what you and I are saying to do. Not, I'm not talking about skill challenges now, just skill checks. Well, and the, the fact that in the fifth edition, it only really exemplifies or, or provides guidance on those skill checks in adventures really sucks for someone who only homebrews. Yeah, no question. No question. Um, like I, I will definitely agree with you that uh, the, the player's handbook and DMG and uh, Xanathar's and Tasha's could all do could, could all be doing a better job of teaching you uh, what skill checks need to look like and function like. Um, that's yeah, n- no argument there. And here's here's my thesis to round this out. I believe, at least in part that the reason why the skill system in 5th edition is so underdeveloped is because of the backlash from skill challenges in 4th edition. So, yes, to some extent. I think there's a an additional lingering um, 
3.5 and Pathfinder Backlash present also. And the reason I say that is that if you think back to uh, either of those books, when you get to the skill section, there is a very lengthy chapter on all of the tasks you can expect to complete with this skill and DC setting for them. Right. 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 Uh, Remember, yeah. That is, it, it attempts to be comprehensive and, I mean, it's guaranteed to fail. There, there is no succeeding at that. Uh, 4E is still pretty bad about attempting to be comprehensive in like what you're going to be doing with all these skills uh, as you start to see uh, a bit more, I want to say, in the third player's handbook. Um, they try to take care of it by reducing the skill list. Which helps. And, and, and making ranks... Uh, making like getting rid of ranks and just having trained or untrained and making those skills sort of more umbrella buckets where you might try an, an action within that skill Yep. compared to multiple ranks, you know, from certain character types, being able to purchase those skill ranks at different costs and blah, blah, blah. Oh, I mean, I absolutely agree that um, the, the 4E, skill fundamentals of sort of trained or not, as opposed to uh, sort of uh, tinkering with individual skill ranks uh, from zero to 23 or whatever. Uh, that's, that's much preferable. And Pathfinder 2E uh, is a, a great example of uh Okay, so we we sort of got rid of skill points. They, they have a, a it's more granular than trained, untrained, and more granular than non proficient, proficient expertise. Right. Right. It's uh, is this the this is the trained expert master? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they still have. You need a plus plus two plus four plus six plus eight. Right. But because of the the way Pathfinder wants to be player facing, they define all the tasks that you can expect to perform with all of your skills. I, I'm sure there is, is guidance that I haven't uh, spotted because I haven't done a truly deep read on it. That gets into you know, okay, you want to do something not listed here? How's you, here's how you adjudicate it. But that comprehensiveness is beneficial. In, in terms of like reducing doubt, but it is a, a crushing problem uh, in terms of stopping the action to go look up the the resolution of DC on everything. And I mean, I'm saying this not having played Pathfinder 2E, but instead based on memories in uh, 3.0 and 3.5 of having to stop the game and look up uh, the jump rules for, for jump length every time anytime everyone anyone jumped over something. The other thing that Pathfinder 2 does that kind of throws a wrench into that and makes you look it up is there's a different failure and success states. Yeah. You can fail or succeed, or you can critically fail or critically succeed. And it's not just a simplistic, oh, you double damage or whatever, whatever. It's if you're attempting this skill and you critically succeed, here's what the effect it has, or here's what, you know, um, so it does, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes it more complex uh, while making the list simpler and the ranking system simpler. 
Uh, right. So, which is not a, not a bad way to go for that system. I'm not I'm not knocking Pathfinder 2E. I think that they there's some real brilliance in some of the things they did. Fair enough. Uh, I don't know that it's related to the skill <laughs> system, <laughs> but there is some some I can see as I was reading because I read the Pathfinder 2E book. Uh, well, most of it it's like 600 some yeah. pages, but uh, I could see the the um, lights of brilliance that come from, okay, we're looking at the current state of D and D and Pathfinder and, and other popular fantasy RPGs and other popular RPGs of any genre. And we're trying to figure out how best to use some of these elements and still make it feel like Pathfinder. But, you know, they had the, you know, the, in, in any new edition problem, right. Where you're trying to maintain the old and bring in new and, Anyway, so we're off on a tangent. Yep. Surprise. Uh, so, so yeah, like I, uh, I, I I'm there. I, uh. My my only point is that um, I I like skill challenges, and I feel like the presentation here at the point when it when this was this book was produced is the best presentation they had, yep. and it had really good advice and. It made me really think about the difference in skill usage between current modern editions and older editions and realizing that actually a skill challenge is a great way, and a lot of people are going to disagree with this, a skill challenge is a great way to make using a bunch of skills in a particular scene, scenario, setup, whatever, situation it's a great way to make it feel kind of like old school D&D. If you do it right, you can do it that way without and and you can get rid of the sort of typical let me ask you a perception roll for everything, let me get a history roll for everything, give me a whatever roll for sure. everything. Like you can do it right and make it feel old school and I know a lot of people are going to not agree with that, but I don't give a shit. It's true. I've done it. And part of the reason I did it is because some of the advice in this section right here is it's, it's, it's perfect advice. I just wish it had a little more oomph to it in terms of how to really do it. Yep. Um, once you get into the examples, I think they're very good. Uh, the downside of them is that, um, Reading the examples really highlights how hard it is to spin up a strong skill challenge on the fly. That's that's an incredibly important thing for my whole jamming style. Um, I I don't know what the players are going to do at the start of the session because um, it, unless they've told me in advance that they can go anywhere, I don't know, and, and that's fine. And I I really value that that freedom. Um, but it means that like a, a, a skill challenge model that involves uh, a lot of writing and planning is not going to work for me. I need a skill challenge model where at, at, at minimum, like you are showing me like here, here are some good categories of uh, failure states for different types of situations. Right. Well, and so what I was going to say was, you'll notice that the majority of these examples are f directly taken from actual published adventures in fourth edition, except for notably the one by Rob Donahue. Yep. Right. 
Um, and my second response to you was going to be, you know, there's a reason why there's not a book, you know, the dungeon delve book from fourth edition that had like 30, 30 levels worth of very short delves or whatever. They're basically mix and match little adventure delves you can put into your game. They're small enough to fit in pretty much. Yeah, anywhere. Sure. So you could do it on the fly and just change a few names and whatnot. There's a reason there's not a book like that called skill challenge delves with 30 generic skill challenges. I mean, not, not, not going to lie, I thought about trying to write that. Yeah, me too. And I never could do it. Like, I do think that people have released you know books of challenges uh, on the DMs Guild and such. Just we haven't seen official support for it. Uh, yeah, on, fourth, but on DMs Guild, that means they're 5th edition things, right? Like, oh, right, they're 5th edition things with a skill challenge system that no one has agreed to. Because Right. Yeah. Right. And so what I'm saying is there's a reason that this this chapter has these examples that are from adventures, specifically written published adventures, and not a set of templates for if you're doing a political, you know, negotiation skill challenge, if you're doing a stealth-based skill challenge, if you're doing an arcana-based skill challenge. Like I feel like that chapter could have been written, right? The next chapter on monsters has all the monster templates and all that. There could be a nice set of skill challenge templates. At the time, I wasn't a good enough designer. I don't I still don't know if I am, but I was not good enough with 4E to to write that product myself. And I'm not sure that it's possible because because of what I have been saying this whole chapter which is it would be really nice to have very specific examples based on the situation or to, just to say, of course, this is just a guideline. You have to have the specific context of the situation to make this work. I mean, nobody, you know, it's like what you said about them trying to codify every single use of a skill and the DC for every single possible use of the skill. They can't do it. Well, by the same token, they can't codify the failure states and and win states of each possible skill challenge with every possible skill combination. You know what I mean? Like, it's yep. just, that's a lot of work to ask. Yep. Yeah, I'm just paging through all the examples here and really appreciating them, as, I, as we keep saying. Because, oh, some of them are quite good. Because they're very interesting things. They, they do range from... Uh, very simple and stripped down things to very involved multi-stage things, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, but you know, some of the big questions around skill challenges are things like: uh, Do does the DM sort of decide very firmly at the start of the challenge uh, which skills are going to be allowed? Uh, and in principle, creativity is great and and useful and good. In practice, it's altogether too easy for some skills, uh, Arcana, we're looking at you, to be used to justify anything, um, and thus, you know, be a much too good wildcard skill, right? I use my magic at it is not satisfying. Uh, don't get me wrong, I have totally run the game that way. I'm, I'm speaking from uh, hard-earned experience not uh, mere judgment. And it also highlights how arcana and religion and nature are different. Because in theory, druids should be rolling nature to do the same thing. 
in practice, nature is much, much more explicit about not doing that, and people don't propose to allow nature to do that. Anyway, um, I I just want to I just want to praise uh, the last two examples. One of them is the one by Rob Donahue I mentioned earlier. That was uh, it's called War by Other Means, and it's basically about uh, you know trying to make sure t- some political things don't happen and some a war does not break out. Yep. Um, it's very nice. And then the next one is moving through Suderham. Suderham is the town from the old AD&D adventures, the A series of modules, A1, Secret of the Slaver, Stockade, and, uh, or under the, whatever, the A1 through A4. It's about the slave lords. Suderham is the city that you're in. Cool. In that set of adventures. Nice. And uh, and this is a very nice like four page ba- or three page. Basically, you're traveling through the city, and it talks about how to split the city into different areas, and you can set DCs for moving through different parts. And uh, and it's a very interesting. Um, here's why I'm calling it out. It's basically a hex crawl through a town. Yep. So it's a city crawl. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the idea of the skill challenge as the interstitial space between other encounters. Mm-hmm. That's that's an incredibly strong model. And it's what both of them are doing in different ways. Uh, right. Rob's uh, version more through um, more an interstitial space between social interactions. And then um, the, the moving through Suderham, uh, I think, you know, more interstitial space between combat, but I'm not sure that's even true. Now, also importantly, you have the a totally different approach to effects of failure because that's where I was going next. <laughs> yeah, three failures is not you tapping out. Uh, sorry, game over. Mm-hmm. You th- there's handling for eight or more failures. Well, yeah, like that's uh, of course I love that. It's what I'm saying they should be doing. Right. Um, right. But but I just think that we want to include ways for things to get worse for the players. I think that, um, you know, even in, even if you are going to have just three failures and, and you lose the whole deal, uh, you want to, to have a situation where the players take multiple turns. And you know, once everyone's acted once, there's a way for things to get worse so that tension can get ramped up. Right, mm-hmm. and and maybe it only sometimes does get worse. Maybe it's a, a, a coin toss whether the bad thing starts to ramp up, but you don't right. ever want a skill challenge to represent. Well, you just got all the time in the world. Just you know, if the, if there's not some kind of time pressure, then yeah, they would probably keep doing it until they just succeeded on their own. What's the? Why are we having a challenge? Right. And, and so, so one of the things I was going to say about what you were saying about uh, failures and whatnot is sometimes failure can be seen as a – like you can succeed at the actual – that part of the skill challenge, but because you failed the role or you failed whatever number of times, someone helped you finish it. Sure. And now you owe that person. For sure. For sure. And if the DM is really mean like myself, that person is somebody you don't want to owe. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, as long as the PCs did have some kind of um, a moment of agreeing to Choice. accept that help, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, 
Of course, yes. Uh, unless Absolutely. it's a, a fully supernatural entity that where they couldn't even perceive it, right? Right. Now, I, I'm not talking about a, a Deus Ex Machina, right? Yeah. Machina, whatever you pronounce Machina. it. I'm not talking about that. I, I'm I'm talking about they are offered help and now they have a decision to make. If they take the help, they now owe that person, but they succeed on that particular portion of, right, of the check. Yeah, yeah. Of the challenge, if they don't accept the help, they fail, yeah. and it has other consequences. It, yeah, like it, what you're describing is the Forge in the Dark Devil's Bargain. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right. into it. It's very right. good. Exactly. Right, right. Uh, that's that's absolutely a, a great like conceptual piece of tech, and mm-hmm. yeah, everybody loves that. Uh, just receiving the offer, even if you know you're going to turn it down, feels pretty good. Right. Um, and, and GM's having an offer in their pocket, like that's, that's amazing. Like I'm just saying, you could do that with a skill challenge, right? Like I, I, these things got ravaged, right? As a mechanic. Oh, why do you want to turn my social encounter, which is supposed to be the time when we're role playing? This is where the, where the 4E has no role playing thought comes from in part, right? Oh, why do you, why did you, it's just a framework, people. It's a framework for the GM to make something a little more complex than role of perception. Right. And, you know, in my 5E game, really a lot of uh, social encounters don't involve any charisma skill roles. Right. Sure. But of course. in my game uh, this past weekend, uh, the PCs were rolling a lot of intimidation and persuasion tests because there were like magical forces at stake that they needed to give the NPC they were talking to a a, a you know hard social push to overcome. Right. So I didn't feel that. You know, I was going to be satisfied with uh, sort of words alone doing it, but also I had a, a, a sort of doom track running in the background uh, that the PCs knew about, um, where when they failed these checks, things in, just environmentally got worse. Nice. Uh, and that all basically wound up paying off in the final encounter. I could have been more transparent with it, but. I did what I did to the best of my ability. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds fun. It was pretty cool. So do we want to move on to uh, chapter four? Yeah. I think we're, I think we're all set on chapter three. <laughs> I mean, good talk. Okay. Just boy, is it, yeah. is it complicated stuff? I, I mean, look, I, it, skill challenges are probably one of the most controversial things. Uh, it, let's say one of the most controversial innovations in D and D in the past 20 years. Yep. I mean, why shouldn't we end up spending an hour talking about it? Yep. You know, I mean, it deserves it. I, I absolutely agree with that. So, so right. We get monster themes as the first part of chapter four. Um, and uh, talking about how to like take a bunch of existing monster stat blocks, slap a theme on top of them. And, you know, that theme is now doing a lot of the work of telling your story, which is great. That's a really cool thing. Um, it's just like templates in uh, 3.0 and 3.5 and, and in 5e. Uh, 5e goes way later on templates. But 
I mean, so like when you look at, say, page 112, and it's talking about a legion of Avernus, right? Yep. If you turn to your good old uh, Morty's Tome of Foes, right? Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes from 5th edition, and you look around page 020 or so, you find that there are diabolical cults, and, you know, it gives you... Uh, several different uh, elements that are part of those. For example, the cult of Mammon on page 20, it tells you the goals, who the typical cultist would be if the DM wants to uh, use a, a standard stat block, and then some signature spells. And then it gives a couple of different uh, traits that provide some powers to that. That's a template. It's a template. Yeah. I mean, they don't call it a template, but it's a template. And it's very similar to what is done here in this fourth edition book. But of course, the fourth edition version is much more extensive because the creature stat blocks were so different and, and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, I, I would posit that, you know, I mean, as you said, we had templates in third edition too. Um, but, you know, it's just uh, the evolution of these things has gone through. And in fourth edition, it, of course, fits fourth edition style monsters. And then that's carried right through to fifth edition. Well, right. And, and some of the, the theme ideas they have here are, frankly, just more interesting than, than some of the often more obvious templates of uh, 30035, right? Um, I find Goblin Allies to be an especially interesting theme because it gets applied to something much bigger than your average goblin. Um, and, and then, obviously, I'm going to be happy with the Feywild Denizen uh, <laughs> theme, yes. because, yeah, you're, you're like creating a Fey version of just whatever the hell it is. That's great. That's, that's really useful in any edition. You're going to need that kind of thing now that 4th uh, edition has come along and uh, said... Yes, there can be uh, fairy stuff in all kinds of stuff. It's great. Go for it. And the fan base has said, why weren't we doing this for decades? This is fantastic. Uh, at least my sales numbers on um, the Fae Bargains suggest that's what they think about it. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. Yeah, it's, it's done yeah. really well. I like the Those Who Hear because it's about Four Realm stuff. And of course... Far realm manifestation can be so freaky and weird, and it's meant to be so alien. And uh, you know, um, part of the reason I like it is the madness manifestations that occur here are not offensive. Sure, <laughs> if that you know what I'm saying. Like the these aren't let's let's make a group of offensive. You know you know, crazy person, stereotypical. Yep. This is like true alien mind twist, weird stuff that has really no true real world analog because, you know, these are distant stars affecting, you know, powers from distant, distant stars affecting you. And it is too crazy, weird, obnoxious, unthinking for your brain to even understand. Yep. And yet, here it is, <laughs> right? Here's the template. Good stuff. Right? Good yeah, it's stuff. good stuff. I like it. I mean, the, the crazy human rabble just sounds like a maniac from Call of Cthulhu. But right. what can you right. do, right? Um, but yeah, the, the themes are all great. Um, I would not be at all sorry to see them um, 
brought into fifth edition more fully, though you're very right to point out the uh, the, the cults. Right, it's, it's a great example of exactly this kind of thing. Um, the differences in how stat blocks work do increase the implementation difficulty, um, but just the pure tacticalness, the the tactical aspect of fourth edition D and D stat blocks. Yeah, exactly. Is is hard to get around. You wonder what to do with it, and if you just I, the easy answer is, oh, just remove anything that has a movement effect or that has whatever. But when you do that, you lose yeah. part of these, and you lose part of the flavor. And so you you kind of have to really be thoughtful about, okay, well, why did that particular template have that power? Yeah. How could we allow something like that to manifest in fifth edition without relying on the tact purely tactical aspect? And that's not always the easiest thing to do as you know yeah i think that figuring out what part of the story of that thing you can most efficiently tell in 5e uh, even better if you couldn't tell it well in 4e right uh, is is the way to go that's gonna be true of any kind of adaptation uh, sure. Sure. but but especially uh something like this that is intended to be a complicating factor on an already pretty involved stat block. And then we get to templates. Um, the difference between a theme and a template is um, what again? Well, so the, the templates are a way to provide uh, an elite version of a particular creature. Right. Very good. Whereas that's why I say templates, they, they, they're called, it's a different thing, but I mean, ba basically the stuff we've been talking about is what we would consider a template. And that would, that would be called a template in third edition and a template in fifth edition. But in, in this edition, it calls them themes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So monster themes. And the reason it calls them themes is because, um, not every, so there, these are like two page spreads and not everything that's on here is going to get applied to every single creature. So it's giving you a way to create multiple different types of creatures within the same theme. And then you know that that group of creatures could actually work together and seem really like they're connected, even though they have slightly different powers, right? Yep. Whereas the th template itself is showing you a way to turn the leader of that group, let's say, into an elite uh, creature right. and it still matches the the kind of thematic elements of a related set of creatures. And I will absolutely go on record as saying that I think elites in 4e are fantastic as just a thing, and I wish the tech to make elites a thing in in 5e were more graceful. Yeah, I mean you could just adapt these changes. And you'd get somewhere that you'd have to like work out the stat block by hand. Um, this, these stat blocks weren't meant to be, you know, modifications of the the rest of the monster stat blocks that you just applied on the fly. You're intended to do it as part of your session prep, or even better, you're intended to do it while logged into D and D Insider, right? That that wonderful tool that uh, has just closed its doors in in the past six months to a year. Um, and, you, you know, once you know about D&D &D Insider, you understand why these are okay 
much more immediately. But um, I mean, you you could probably do something like um, here have a bucket of additional hit points. You only need to know this at the moment that you write down hit points in your tracker, and then here have like an action surge or something as a once per combat deal. And, and you you're not there, but you you can see there from here. You know what I mean? Um, because these are also improving the saving throws, especially against crowd controls, um, and then granting other um, immediate interrupts and uh, recharge powers and that kind of thing. And those are all great. And honestly, adding in a single new power, as long as you can write it down on an index card for ease of reference, uh, you're somewhere with that. That's it's okay. But um, every single new thing you add is uh, making it net less new DM friendly and increasing your mental load. So I, I'm going to say don't have two elites in the same fight ever is a really good self-rule. Um, among other things, it dilutes the interest because like, the point of the elite is that you know, in the, the 5e space is, hey, this thing is a little bit of a rock star compared to other similar things. Uh, it's a mini-boss. It's the iconic scene in the movie where the the heroes are are obviously beating up all of the opponents, and then Big Ben walks around the corner, you right. know, and it's like, oh, there's the leader. Now we know why it was so easy to kill these little pipsqueak goblins with no no big deal. But now that their leader has come across, now they have redoubled their efforts, and you know the leader's there, so now you know where to set your sights. But that dude is a bad. So going back to Rogue One, I think we all know what scene I'm now thinking of. <laughs> it's it's the red lightsaber igniting. You know what's up. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about, sir. How dare you accuse me? <laughs> I, I accuse you of nothing. I, I'm assuming all of, our, all of our listeners have seen Rogue One, because otherwise, oh, spoilers. Uh, if you haven't seen Rogue One, go see Rogue One. Yes, well, don't go. Do. Sit at home and see Rogue One, for God's sake. Don't yes, go to the theater. Sit at home what are you with doing? your mask on, even, as penance, and watch Rogue right? One. Um, I mean, can it be spoilers if it's a movie that's already been out for more than two years? Just don't think of it as a Bacta tank. Think of it as a hand sanitizer tank. There you go. Yes. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. The, 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 I, I agree about elites. Elites yeah. rock. Elites are amazing. Um we had really, really good experiences with elites in in our four E games. Um, like, I, I can see some of the reasons. And it's mostly about complexity that they didn't get brought into Five E originally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been running Five E long enough to be pretty comfortable with some complexity. So, yeah, and, uh, okay. Um, I oh boy, that can be a whole digression that I don't know we have time for. Yeah, Super I have things fair. to say about that. Well, uh, maybe we'll cover it next time out. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so then we get to class templates. Yep, and, and these stay fairly light, but mm-hmm. the, the conceit of these is when you want to encounter someone who is like you. Right. Th- this is, you know, 
just like a PC, they have as much you know cool plot armor as the PCs do. Uh, they're just your opposite number. I love this. This is my deal. Elite barbarian, the elite invoker, the elite druid, and and of note, these are just the the uh, templates for the PC classes from the Player's Handbook 2 and the FR Player's Guide, yep. uh, which had been released very recently, right before this book came out. Yep. Um, because they so, did do in this words, in, the, the, in the DMG, right? Right. The other ones are in the regular DMG. Yeah, the DMG one. Yeah. Uh, Sword Mage. Uh, yeah. I love Sword uh, Mages so much. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get a nice little section on creating monsters. Uh, it's very short. Um, I do, I do have a note to myself that on page 132, this, the sidebar here by Logan Bonner, the monster making tips, um, that's a set of monster making tips for any edition. Oh, it's super good. Um, it is so good. That that very first tip effects to take away actions should be used Mm -hmm. sparingly. Um, that is a lesson that Fury needed to take more to heart than it did. Yes, it did. Well, you know, I always lament against dazed, stunned, and dominated. Yeah, man. Those are just, they're killers. Not, not, I don't mean that as they kill the PC. I mean it as they're fun killers for the player. Yep. Because remember, in 4th edition, combats were so long. Okay, in and- fairness, I do have players who are very happy about getting to murder their buddies. They're totally fine. Okay, so the dominated thing. But when you don't get to choose your own action and you only get to take your turn once every 10 or 15 minutes, that makes it really not It's it's a real bummer. And stun save ends, um, no. Yeah. No, die in a fire. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Anyway. (laughs) But um, like effects that reduce damage output, um, that's that's a – use that carefully because Mm -hmm. you risk turning the fight into a grind. Of just okay, I, I'm doing my damage, but only half of it. And same with the creature healing. Man, I saw that in a really nasty way in a not too long ago five E session where the creature had um resistance to everything the PCs could do. Oh god. And they had no way around it. And it had just this giant bucket of hit points just beating and beating and beating. Yeah. Oh my god. Why did you write this with resistance to all of their damage types. This is misery. Yeah, um, that's, that's rough. Uh, so, so too much healing is one that I feel kind of mixed ways about. Um, and I, I'm coming from a video game space here. Right. But, but in, in, in four E when the combats were, you know, in fifth edition, you know what a combat is usually about four rounds, right? right? Four plus or minus two, right? Sure. So, you know, a little bit of healing might extend that by one or two rounds. You're not going to, you know, you're not pushing it, right? In fourth edition, though, you extend that combat by one or two rounds. Sure. You might be looking at another half hour of play. Um, And the thing that makes me mixed in my reaction to too much healing is just uh, if there's too much healing – you might have a, have a pretty good effective way to tell the players you ain't ready for this fight. They can't necessarily burn you down, but you are not making progress. Ah, see, but that's a very different. Yeah, that that's true. Yes, that, that's a very different uh, so goal. But it's a it, right. It's a it's a DPS check kind of moment that 
you don't usually want in tabletop, but when you do want it, it's nice to have a tool for it. Right. Sure. And that's basically this creature is regenerating through everything you're throwing at it. Like what you're doing is adorable, but regen 20 says get bent, dude. But that's why these are tips and not hard and fast rules. Right. As a general statement, too much healing is a bad thing. Right. Uh, And then, uh, Repetitious resistances, um, yeah, yeah, varied up on resistances so that you know the wizard's fire effect is actually good against something today and not cool. I bought all these fire spells. Why? Like that, that's that's very good. That's a very good tip. Five E could stand to internalize that more because let's talk about poison resistance and charm <laughs> immunity. Um, then stealing resources. Uh, avoid monsters to take away or turn off the PC's resources, such as healing surges, limited use powers, or magic items. That's that's very important in 4E. Um, there aren't a lot of things that even would do that in 5E, but um, I, I, I'm not absolutely opposed to the idea, just because, hey, uh, big bad should be able to do actually big bad things. I agree, but if you're making just generic monster 101... For sure. Uh, you want to make sure that you think about these things. And even in fifth edition, you know, stealing resources, it can be, you know, okay, well, if you're making a little lowly minion style goblin and you're sure that the party will take care of them, hey, if there's a bad couple of dice rolls, suddenly you've got a creature that has stolen a ton of resources. They're hitting way above their weight. Sure. So it's, a, it's at least a decent piece of advice to think about it. Well, and when you're working in an attrition based model, as uh, all of D&D is, mm-hmm. right? Uh, this is a monster that is uh, doing more attrition than it should be, right? right. Now, yep. what what I'd like to really explore is something I, I saw in Slay the Spire, which is where it, it steals the resource only for the length of its own life. You get the resource back once it's done. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Uh, it, it's just grabbing it, like it's a temporary absorb. That could be fine, actually. Um, and you could really go, like, you can get away with a lot if the PC can get it back by murdering the thing. Yeah, cool. Uh, so the section on creating new monsters, like, it's great to have this. Uh, it's one page. I don't have a lot to say about it, but, um, I, like, it doesn't make me miss solos also. Like, like real honest to God solos because uh, everyone and their brother knows that uh, 5e legendaries uh, just need more hit points. Let's, let's be blunt. Like they're, they're intended to still be part of a three round fight and mm-hmm. that doesn't quite feel right. I'm sorry. Um, and yeah. like, if you don't know this already, uh, dragons are still under CR'd. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, they they are actually heavier hitters than their CR reads because much like Fireball and Lightning Bolt getting to do more damage than their spell level, uh, if you get your name in the title of the game, you get to be pretty fucking cool. Right. 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 And and I support that. Go hard. No, go harder than that. Yeah. Is I mean, I, they've pretty much admitted that they let Fireball hit, you know, above its spell level. On purpose, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that, well, mm. it, it's not like they can't read their math and see that eighty-six is bigger than sixty-six. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm just, I'm just saying it was a conscious choice because it's such an iconic, powerful spell. Yeah, so um, that's fine. And it, and I, it, I have no problem. It really like, informs a lot about who gets fireball and who doesn't. Right? It's why the uh, wildfire druid doesn't have fireball now. It's because it is not intended to be that specific kind of blaster. Right. So anyway, I basically agree with you uh, about this page. It's a one-page thing. It's not taking up too much space. It has a couple of little pieces of advice that are really good. Uh, and then we can move beyond it, and it's not a big deal. Yep. Um, and then we get to Chapter 5. Uh, so with the end of Chapter 4, we're going to call this episode right now, and we will be back tomorrow with the rest of this particular tome, which I hope you can see that we both actually find a great deal of inspiration from. Um, so let's sign out. Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. I write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brandisstoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Excellent. And I am DM Samuel on Twitter, and you can find me on the web at rpgmusings.com. And you can find me on twitch.tv slash Midgardia, where I'm running my Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game. Or you can find me on twitch.tv slash Trolllord Games every Wednesday night, where I run a Castles and Crusades game. Or you can find me every other Sunday on twitch.tv slash DM Samuel. <laughs> where I run my fifth edition D and D brief game. Uh, and so with that, I think we'll sign out Wear your mask. It's still really bad out there. Oh my gosh, guys. Look, it's winter. Let it, let the mask keep your face warm. It's fine. It's warm. Thanks. Y'all. Whereas the DMG two, of a fourth edition, that's the book that you go to when things are starting to feel stale and you need some of that good DM heroin in your veins. Like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> like, it's great. <laughs> <laughs>